Our gracious God in heaven, we do thank You for the blessing of this Lord's Day and the privilege to be able to come and to open up Your Word and to study Your Word. We ask today that You would, by Your Holy Spirit, guide us and direct us, uh, teach us that we may grow in our wisdom of Your Word and grow in godliness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what we, con- what we concluded with last week uh, is we looked at 11, uh, of which there's a total of 13 arrangements, uh, according to my study, of how does God bless the righteous. And you may recall that we looked at God blesses the righteous through the stability of place and home. God blesses the righteous through stability of character. God blesses the righteous uh, by delivering them, specifically from death. God blesses the righteous on a right way, a right path, a right direction. Uh, God blesses the righteous by meeting their needs, by blessing them, by granting their desires and godliness, by uh, giving them a hope that yields joy by a heritage of righteousness, desires filled, and the blessing of reward. And so all of that we looked at last week. So in conclusion, what we're going to look at today is actually just two things that we did not get to last week and then one concluding theme. Uh, The two that we missed last week is, how does God bless the righteous? He blesses us through our prayers heard. Our prayers heard. Let's look at these two proverbs I have on your outline. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Pause there for just a second. Why is the sacrifice, so we're thinking about here, the context is old covenant worship, sacrifice. Why is the sacrifice of the wicked an abomination to the Lord? Well, I suppose so, but if it is if it is actually, let's say it is at the temple and the sacrifice is according to God's ceremonial law being rendered rightly, then in a, in a sense the sacrifice would be, for all intents and purposes, and we don't know otherwise, would be to God. So let's presume that just for the sake of conversation. Uh, but why would his or her... Uh, in this case, his uh, abomin- what, uh, sacrifice be an abomination. Not from the heart. Not in faith. Not in faith. Yeah, the, the 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 general idea is is that the one who is characterized. Remember, the the sage typically speaks in absolutes. The wicked, the one who is characterized as wicked, in fact, is not a person of faith, has a wrong intention of the heart. Uh, J.J.? Could, could be, could be self-justifying, could be self-exalting. Uh, but whatever the case is, here's the point, and, and this will be very familiar uh, to, to all of us, I think, and that is, is that right worship is not right because you do it right. Think about that for just a second. Right worship is not right just because you do it right. Because you can do everything right, quote unquote, and yet 
not have, as the Old Testament would refer to it, a circumcised heart. Not have, uh, the, uh, of course, the faith, but also just the right intent. And so, to a certain extent, you can think about this in the sense of going through the motions. Well, what are you talking about? I showed up and I did everything right, by the book, to the T. You're saying my worship isn't right? The sage is. He is saying that. He's saying that right worship is right, not because you played by the rules, although we do play by the rules and we are to worship God rightly, but worship comes first and foremost from the heart. It is to be a right heart attitude or a circumcised heart. Secondly, the second clause then says, but the prayer, so now note the contrast, the sage has introduced this. It's, a, it's a, par- a contrast, a parallel of contrast. The sacrifice now is substituted with the prayer. And it's not the sacrifice of the wicked, but now it's the prayer of the upright. And what does it say about the prayer of the upright? It is acceptable to him. Now, a couple of things to pay attention to here. First of all, note that the sage is using a contrast of worship. So, for example, again, from a purely fleshly standpoint, from a purely practical material standpoint, if you are at the temple, which would you consider to be a greater material act of worship? The sacrifice upon the altar or a prayer over here? Well, the the, the sage is intending to draw a contrast. I've come and I've made this sacrifice. It's a big deal. I have used my money or I've used my lamb or I've used whatever the case is and I am making this sacrifice. And yet, we, th- we think about the, the, the unknown prayer, the quiet prayer uh, perhaps is noted as significantly different. And yet, what the, the sage is doing here is by contrast of showing that it is the, a matter of the heart. The one who is upright in heart, is his prayer is acceptable to the Lord in this contrast. And so, we could say then that the prayers of the righteous are heard. I want to ask a question, but before I do, I want you to look at the second proverb for a tie-in here. The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. So again, the second half of that proverb is almost identical to Proverb 15.8. Note incidentally that they're in the same chapter, uh, chapter 15. Uh, so we'll see themes like this in groupings within uh, the Proverbs. But the, sa- the first clause in both of those Proverbs is different. One has to do with this act of worship uh, of, the, of the wicked. The other has to do with God's posture based on the one who is characterized as wicked. In both cases, we see that God is against both an abomination to uh, the sacrifice that has been received and the posture or the person, in this case, uh, versus the one who is righteous. Now, think with me for just a second, and this is what I mean by the tie-in. Where do we hear an echo of this in the New Testament? Where do we hear an echo of this in the New Testament? Where do we hear an echo of this in the book of James? 
I meant that as a joke. That's where you find it in the New Testament. That's where the echo is. Uh, what, what does James say on this topic? The, the prayers of a righteous man, the one who is characterized by righteousness. In this case, we see a tie-in. And so James is, scholars believe that more than likely, James is quoting in a paraphrase, paraphrase way. Is that a word? Anyway, like a paraphrase. Um, is, is quoting from one of these two Proverbs, if not both of these Proverbs. And he's telling us something about the character of the one who prays, right? And then he introduces an example from the Old Testament. And, and what example does James introduce? <clears throat> I know this is Bible trivia morning, right? And you're tired, and you thought you were just coming to listen to me talk about the Proverbs, and here I am, testing your Bible knowledge. Who does James introduce as, as Exhibit A? Elijah. And so he gives Elijah as Exhibit A, and what does he say about Elijah? So he starts out and he says, he's just a man like us. No, no different, flesh and bone, not the Son of God, yes, a prophet, but just, just a man, just a man. And yet, he prayed, and God heard his prayer, right? And so the idea here, the concept is, is James is tying in, for the redeemed, James is tying in this aspect of, of righteousness and of character, so forth and so on, uh, to encourage us to pray. And you think about this from a new covenant perspective. We who are in Christ, who are positionally right with God in Christ, so also our character matters. How we live our lives matters. Our righteousness and our lived out experientially matters as it does in <clears throat> the means of grace that God gives. And so God hears the prayers of the righteous. Number th 13, and last on this topic, uh, is the word, uh, because I couldn't come up with a better topical category, and so I'm labeling this prevailing. Um, and here's what I mean by this. Look at the first uh, proverb, twenty nine sixteen: When the wicked increase... Transgression increases, but the righteous will look upon their downfall. And, and so I use the word prevailing there, meaning that, that the, the righteous will prevail in the end. That's, that's, where, <laughs> that's the word I was trying to draw from. And, and you see here in this first uh, proverb <clears throat> that I've given you, is, it talks about the wicked increasing. And, and I find this interesting in the sense that um, it's a foregone conclusion. We live in a fallen world. And because we live in a fallen world, the wicked are, at times, going to thrive. And it says, what happens when the wicked thrive? What happens? Second clause. Second clause. Transgression increases. 
meaning that when we live in a world, whether it's our modern culture or you can go all the way back, uh, we're re- reading recently on the Tower of Babel, right? You can go all the way back to, to, to whatever section of history you want to find, and it can be sure that the wicked are, when the wicked increase, transgression increases. People see that. I was thinking about this. We're in Exodus right now in our Bible reading and thinking about uh, how in chapter 20 of Exodus, when Moses has presented the Ten Commandments and the people of Israel, and I'm really paraphrasing now, but basically say, of course we're going to obey that. You've given your commands from on high. We've seen thunder and lightning and that really weird trumpet blowing and all of the stuff going on. What, how could we not obey your Ten Commandments? Turn the page. <laughs> and the golden calf, you know, where's this guy Moses? He's disappeared. Great, let's start worshiping a golden calf. And, uh, and, and it is just amazing that all, we don't, we don't hear of the separatists, at least in that moment, uh, of the separatists breaking away from this. And so we see that where the wicked increase, transgression increases, but what? But the righteous will look upon their downfall. Now, Again, remember this, because this is oftentimes where people will get confused and perhaps even frustrated with the Word of God in thinking about this as a promise and thinking about this as something that very well is going to happen in your lifetime. So so I'll just put an end to both of those. Number one, Proverbs aren't promises. Number two, this very well may not happen in our lifetime. So we'll, we'll put both of those to, to death, right? It very well could be that the wicked thrive, transgression increases, and then you die. That could be the case. Now that is not always the case. And one of the great mysteries for theologians is to look back at biblical and church history and to see the mystery of how God works and how revival works and how we sometimes see that people within their own age do in fact see the the righteous prevailing over the wicked. But the point is, is that we look through this proverb to the end. We look to the end because in the end, on Judgment Day, no one wicked will prevail. God's righteousness will prevail in the end, and so we have to look beyond our circumstances to the end. Yeah, Don? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I don't know if all of you could hear Don back there, but what he, what he said was when you're, you're in a culture like ancient Israel and you have families and generation after generation after generation living together and you're going to have a certain continuity of history. I mean, what's, what's one of the prevailing uh, statements in the Old Testament? Remember. 
right? I mean, we see that over and over again with the children of Israel. Remember, remember, set up this monument so you can look back. This happened so we can remember, so forth and so on. And, and to Don's point is that's, that's lost in a, a culture that is both drastically mobile as well as constant changing. There was a, and I'm going to be really careful here with the sake of time, but, but uh, there was an article I read two weeks ago on this very topic, and it talked about how uh, our generation, and what I mean by that is like everybody in this room going from somebody really, really young like me to somebody really, really old like Greg. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, trying to figure out which one, aren't you? <laughs> um, but, but what the, the, the gist of the argument was is that um, how many of you can name your great-great-grandfather? How many of you can name your great-great-great-grandfather? And the gist of the article was, is that that is a modern phenomenon. Uh, that in, beyond our group, but let's just say uh, 150 years ago, um, it, it would have been far more common for us to have known our ancestors and kept fi- family trees. Uh, you know, one of the gifts that my dad gave me on my ordination is the family Bible of uh, the Claytons that goes all the way back to the 1700s, and it's got the different Claytons going down the lines. I'm happy to let you know uh, that, that starting out, they were Presbyterians. And so, uh, yeah, so, I mean, they got off track at some point, but, you know. Uh, but, but, but that, that, is, that, is, that is very uncommon, but to, to the point of the article was not, hey, let's all go get an account at Ancestry.com. The point of the, the, the article was, is that with that, we lose the stories, and we lose the memories of your great-great-great-grandfather was a man of God. And your great-great-great-grandmother was a woman who loved the Lord, and so forth and so on. And, and, and we lose this, this history and this connectivity to Don's point uh, that would have, in fact, prevailed during uh, a period where there's not a lot of mobility and where you do have families living together. Okay, so back on topic, uh, Proverbs 24, 15, and 16, "...lie not in, a, in wait." As a wicked man against the dwelling of the righteous. So this is instruction, right? Do not do no violence to his home, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. Now, when I was studying this proverb, one of the things that I thought was so fascinating is at least two of the commentators said, note carefully that it says, the righteous falls. And one of the commentators actually pointed out that this is something that we have to remember in the absolutes of the Proverbs, where the righteous are 100% righteous and the wicked are 100% wicked. The reality is, is that even the righteous man or woman falls from time to time. And we can see this in church history, and we see examples, maybe family examples, maybe even our own selves, where we have fallen into sin momentarily, and yet God in His faithfulness 
restores us again and again and again. And note, the sage employs uh, the numerology, so to speak, of the number seven, meaning what? Even if the righteous falls, the perfect number, still what? Still they will prevail. God's grace extends over and over again. I love the, the phrase that's translated here, they rise again. The, again, that's the contrast. The language contrast is of falling and rising. But what does it say of the of the wicked? The wicked, when difficult times, times of calamity come, the di- the the wicked, indeed, they stumble too. But what? They fall, but do not rise. And so, I thought that was a a, a really insightful point from the commentators on that, and the point being that in terms of, of righteousness and wickedness, we see the concept and God's faithfulness to the righteous. All right, so the last topic that I want us to look at is this question of how does a civilization respond to righteousness and wickedness? And I have not assigned these uh, into any topics. I'm leaving them here for us for the sake of discussion. We've got about 15 minutes uh, in which we can discuss these. I'm going to read them all together, then we'll come back. But I want you to remember the question. So be thinking about this. How does a civilization, whether it's the United States of America in 2023, or it's Scotland in the 18th century, or it is... Whatever the case is, you insert that, but obviously I think it's most apropos for us to consider the time in which we live. How does a civilization respond to righteousness and wickedness? All right, Proverbs 21.15. When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Proverbs 28.12. When the righteous triumph, there is great glory. But when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. Proverbs 28, 28. When the wicked rise, people hide themselves. But when they perish, the righteous increase. Note the echo there between verse 12 and 28. And then Proverbs 29, 12. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. Now, I realize there, there, so there's crossover. In fact, in, in, in two verses, there's exact uh, same words that are used um, in the Hebrew and the, in the tr- English translation. And uh, there's going to be some tie-ins here. But let's look at these. And my question is, first, how does a civilization respond to righteousness and wickedness? But specifically to Proverbs 21.15, when justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. What does it mean by when justice is done. And what would be an example of that? What does it mean when justice is done? Okay, justice, perfect example of of justice being uh, punishment fits the crime, right? So I I think I used this before, haven't I? I mean, we're, we're, what, blocks away from the hanging judge's courtroom over here and the, the gallows. And, uh, and so uh, we, we have a, a, a history lesson just right over here in terms of uh, punishment uh, fitting the crime. Uh, what else? What does it mean by justice is done? 
And while you're thinking about it, and I think Don's example is a very good one, but know that it is active and present tense. Justice, that which is right, is in this moment, it is done. Meaning that justice is served, justice is meted, whatever other word you want to insert other than than done. But the general idea is that it is accomplished. So you can look at it and you can say, along with everyone else that you live with within a civilization, you can look at it and you go, that's just. That's justice. That is right. What has been done today is is right. Now, again, the sage writing in absolute, so, so the idea is perfect justice. And what I mean by that is, is that there's no question among the righteous or wicked, about this being justice. Okay? So that helps then. And by the sage using the absolute of justice, now he tells us something about two different people. He tells us something about the righteous, and he tells us something about the wicked. What does he tell us about the righteous? Yeah. That's exactly right. They, they behold the justice, and we think about this in terms of the communicable attributes of God. One of the communicable attributes, that is, we as believers that we share with our God, is justice. And so we have an innate, you could say, sense of justice. And when we as the redeemed see justice carried out rightly, then it's a joy to us. We're not fearful. In fact, uh, the psalmist says, uh, why, why, why should I fear? What can man do to me? Right? I mean, the general idea in this case is that I see justice. It has been accomplished. I recognize it as justice, and I rejoice in it. That gives me joy to see that. And before we look, well, we'll, pause, we'll go ahead and, and look at this, and then I want to come back to this joy. Uh, but it's terror, so note the contrast between joy and terror. It's terror to evildoers. Why is it terror to evildoers? Yeah, exactly. To, to Don's point is the crime fits the punishment when someone who is bent on evil, and in this case, note carefully, the sage intentionally does not use the word wicked. He uses the word evil doer, Meaning, <laughs> now this is overly simple, right? They do evil. Meaning, <laughs> meaning that they have committed the crime. Past tense. They've done it. They're characterized as one who does that which is wrong, as the punishment fits the crime, so they are what? They're terrified because they think, I'm next. Again, if I can stay with our our 1800s example of of Judge Parker's courthouse over here, to, to witness a hanging sent a message, right? It's in a message of, of, of two ways. Number one, those who had committed no crime, who were simply there to see justice carried out, bear with my example, I know it's not perfect, but to see the hanging was to, in a sense, be joyful, in, 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 in the sense that, and I'm not at all, so don't misunderstand me, and 
don't take this out of context. I'm not saying that there's not value to every human life. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just simply saying that when they saw justice carried out, it was right. And they knew it in their heart. But for the one who is an evildoer, the one who commits the crime, they see it and they think, am I the next to hang? Are they going to catch me? Am I, is justice going to come to me? So that's the general idea. But I want to go back to this, this point of it is a joy to the righteous. Not just in the sense that justice is served, but why else possibly, why else could it be a joy to the righteous to see justice served? Yeah. If you couldn't hear Don, Don said the vindication of God. God's carrying out what He says He will do. And, and I'll, I'll borrow from that to, to agree with that and, and to elaborate on that to say that when we see God in His justice, it's a beautiful thing. And, and, and we rejoice in it. Because we know that it is God, even when God works through means, such as human beings, we still rejoice in that because it is in that that we see but a glimpse of the divine justice of God. Does that make sense? And I, I, maybe I'm, I'm taking that too uh, far out into the field, but I don't, I don't think that I am. I think that what we're seeing there is a rejoicing in that attribute of God. Proverbs 28.12 and 28.28. When the righteous triumph, there is great glory. But when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. Alright, so first of all, the righteous triumph. How do they triumph? Well, in typical fashion, the sage doesn't tell us how the righteous triumph. Could it be in battle? Yes. Could it be in government? Yes. Could it be in business? Yes. Could it be in, you insert a myriad of examples, that's why the sage leaves this open because it's applicable in so many areas, but here's what we know. Those who are characterized as righteous triumph, whatever the case is, and then it says there is great glory. Now that is a fascinating statement and it's a fascinating word choice of the sage. Because in general, the word glory, which is most often used in reference to God in the Old Testament, has this sense of of heaviness, of solemnity, of reverence, seriousness. But here it says that when the righteous triumph, there is great glory. In this sense, it is certainly carries the idea of sobriety, but it also carries the sense of exaltation. So as it is, is used, and again, the, the Hebrew word that's translated glory here is often translated by virtue of its context. As it's used here, the idea is, is that the righteous have triumphed. This is awesome. This is great. We're celebrating. There's, there's the proverbial dancing in the streets. Uh, so to speak. There is great glory. The second half of it, though, is the other side of the story. But when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. So again, we don't know how the wicked rise. 
We don't know the context. We know that it can apply to a myriad of examples. But why this expression, it is a curious expression, why this expression, people hide themselves? First of all, what does that mean? And then I'm curious why the sage has chosen to employ that expression. First of all, what does it mean people hide themselves? Does it mean like they, they, they bunker up with beans and, you know, explosives? I don't know, toilet paper? I mean, what, what, what is it? Yeah. Sorry, I was pointing to somebody else. Go ahead. Uh, so, um, it, it's always sad. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, people are in hardship and worrying and for the next day. Yeah, so the context, the, the implication is, is things are not good. It's a bad situation culturally, uh, civilly. And so, to hide themselves implies what? Yeah, there's no justice. So, if you want justice served, it doesn't. It's not implying a vigilante. But the general idea is is that the the, the Hebrew expression of hide themselves carries the idea of putting one's head down, so to speak, and going through life longing for, praying for, waiting for the righteous to triumph. The general idea is that uh, it's not an idea of, 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 of uh, barricading, but the idea that the righteous are not in power, things are not good, and so people become protective, they become somewhat insulated from their neighbors, so forth and so on. And the general idea of, of hiding there is there is a breakdown of fellowship. There's a breakdown of communion. If, if, if I go you know, hide in the other room. I'm not in here fellowshipping with you. And so some of the commentators say that that's, that's the general idea that the sage is, is conveying here. There, it is not, to Julie's point, it's not a good time in that local culture. But then we see a parallel in 28.28. When the wicked rise, people hide themselves. Okay, we've got that. But then it says, but when they perish... So it's like, here's the good news. Here's the the happy ending to the story. When they perish, the righteous increase. Now, it's fascinating the the choice of words here that the the sage uses, uh, the choosing of increase. And there are different theories from the commentators on what that means. But let's make sure that we understand the first part of that uh, first. And that is, is that whether we're talking about a, a governing of a civilization or whatever the case is, the, those who are wicked, who are in power, are now no longer in power. And so they've, they've fallen, they've died, they've perished, as the, the sage uses here. But then it says the righteous increase. Now, I'm going to tell you what some of the commentators say on this word increase, uh, but I'd be curious to some of your theories. What does it mean, the righteous increase? That's it. Okay, so God's words are proclaimed. Somebody hit something over here. Oh, and you're, now you're taking it back. Okay. 
Yeah. So it'd be an increase in character, an increase in morality. It's good. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Anybody else? Okay. Yeah, that's good. Increasing in, in worship, increasing in trust, so forth and so on. That's good. One of the, the, the arguments of one of the commentators that I found incredibly convincing is this, the word increase. Because it really is a fascinating little word, isn't it, why it would be used here? In the context of the old covenant people of God, those who settled in the land of promise who were given specific promises regarding their habitation of that land, right? You've heard me say this a thousand times, I think. We've got to be very careful taking Old Testament uh, land of covenant promises and transferring them over into the New Testament, and we tread lightly in our doing that. Uh, but in this case, its application is apropos. As we think about the Old Covenant people, how did the Old Covenant people flourish? They flourished under the blessing of godly leadership. Under David, for example, the country thrived. In fact, it thrived so well it even carried on to his son who got caught up in sexual immorality and idolatry and so forth and so on. But still, the blessings flowed onward. And so, so most of the commentators that, that I read say that this is the Old Covenant people and they increase in, of course, as Jennifer said, in their morality, in their character. But it can be also be as practical as is families are more apt to have more children when there's not the threat of evil in the land. And so the families are growing and the grandchildren are growing and, 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 and so to speak, in the land of promise, the wealth is growing and all of these sort of things. The number of people that are able to, to travel to Jerusalem to worship at Mount Zion is growing, so forth and so on. And so the general idea is the increase is the idea of God's blessful, blessed bounty upon those who are able to thrive under the righteous. And then finally, and in closing, Proverbs 29.2, When the righteous increase, <laughs> the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. And again, it's still the same idea, right? So the, and in this case, we know exactly what the wicked are doing. In this case, they're ruling the land. And so uh, how do people respond when the wicked are in charge? You know, this is fascinating because we, and I think this is especially the case with evangelical Christians, we really like our black and white scenarios. And so what we really think is, is that because we live in a fallen world, when the wicked rise to power, that everybody is going to rejoice. And you know what? History Bible history, certainly, but history in general over and over and over and over and over again shows that's just simply not the case. Everyone thrives 
under righteous rule. Wicked rule eventually leads to debauchery, leads to downfall, may lead to anarchy. You have it here uh, in general. But the people, that is everyone in general, groans. But what happens uh, when the righteous increase? And again, the idea here is general. The blessings of the righteous, the people rejoice. And that's a truth for us to end on, right? Uh, It's been a pleasure studying the Proverbs with you. I hope this has been a beneficial study to you. Uh, I hope that, as a number of you have already told me, you'll never read the Proverbs the same again. And I'm going to take that as a good thing. I pray that uh, we will be uh, faithful students of God's Word. And so let me pray to that end. Our gracious God, we do thank You for Your Word. And as Your Word is given by Your Spirit, we acknowledge that all the way down to the structure and punctuation of Your Word is indeed inspired and given by You in the original manuscripts. And we thank You that we can trust in Your Word and that we thank You that You have preserved it for us down through time, that we can come to it and we can study. We thank You for those who have been faithful for generations to the Hebrew language in this case, to translate and to study and to preserve the Scriptures to that end. And we thank You that here in 2023, we can open up Your Word that is as fresh and new today as it was to the first readers of the Proverbs. We pray then that we would be a people of wisdom, that You would indeed, as You're redeemed, You would give us the mind of Christ that we would indeed be the one who is characterized as righteous, for we are righteous in your sight in Christ. We pray that we would be wise students of your word, and that as we come to your word, whether it be the Proverbs or the Psalms or any other part of your word, that we would be diligent to study and to understand, to understand first, then to dig deeply into your word. And so, as your word is to be read and is to be preached this morning, as well as to be sung in our assembled worship, we pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds to worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.